Hi everyone, welcome to another Black Woman's Hour. And today we will be talking about war, we'll be talking about xenophobia, we'll be talking about lockdown weight probably. Um, as usual, I have my trusty sidekick Aisha with me. Aisha, how's the sea? Ah, the sea is great. It's been foggy here, but it's actually kind of nice going in when it's foggy. It's different. Although going... I did go and I bathed on the nudist beach uh, yesterday. I know, right? And of course, it's a nudist beach in Brighton, so it's just full of fat middle-aged men. And I, <laughs> and I don't have like a swim, a dry robe, because I'm not a wanker. So I just change under my towel like it's 1999 and I'm on the side of the <laughs> swimming pool. And so I like wrap it around me. There's been the occasional flash, but I'm pretty competent. And um, I noticed, it's, it's like, and he did have a real tan because obviously he spends his whole days lying on a beach. And even if it's not that sunny, you're just lying there naked. Anyway, and he was facing the other way for the whole time. And I figured, I figured it was like a gate, you know, that's what they, why the area is particularly there near Kemp Town. Um, and um, as soon as I was getting changed, she'd like rolled over and I was like, that's just really awkward. Like when people are getting changed, you're supposed to look the other way. You know, like the gym thing when they just get on the only other machine that's behind you and you're like, but yeah, it was fine. It was fine. I didn't even know there was a nudist beach in the UK, so. I'll take you there. I know, I'll take your word for it. So you can just sort of like, uh, you know, iPhone video me from there, I'm not coming. Then. But I didn't know, so in Brighton, I would expect it to be, I would expect it to be hot gay guys. Is that just a, it's so you know? disappointing free of hot gay guys. It is unbelievable. There was like one hot gay guy walked past with his partner who wasn't hot, so it wasn't even like a double whammy. And they were just holding hands and clothes. So thumbs down. <laughs> Boring. It's exactly. Me. Selfish is what <laughs> Hi, we have the journalist Anna Chen. Anna, you're also going to be speaking at event No Cold War UK in a couple of days time. Yeah, looking forward, looking forward to that. Um, because there's a lot happening, obviously, geopolitically all around us, that our world appears to be falling apart. Yeah. So I've got some opinions. How's lockdown been for you? Um, I quite enjoyed it to, to begin with. Uh, it was it was a novelty and just the silence, you know, no traffic. It was it was it was quite beautiful, really, in a way. And now it's it's quite much, but. We could have done this in our first lockdown, you know, we could have done it properly. Because if you think that China um, went to no um, zero COVID on by day 43 of its 76 day lockdown, because they did it properly. Um, and then they reopened and are enjoying the fruits of that while we're, this thing just seems to be endless while they're extracting as much money as possible. I think 37 billion. Um, at the last, at the last count, is what uh, Dido Harding spent with nothing to show for it. Thank you. So, yeah. Yeah, I've seen people like out in nightclubs in China and stuff, and I'm like, not that I go to nightclubs. I don't even know why I'm bothered. Um, <laughs> I'm way too old for that. <laughs> Annie Ma, you are a journalist as well, and uh, you're also from an organisation called ESEA. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, so I'm part of the ESEA Sisters. We are a group of East and Southeast Asian uh, people who identify as women, trans, non-binary, non-conforming, and even it's basically not a cis male um, in the diaspora across the world. Uh, and we 
came together pretty much after the Atlanta shooting, looking for a place to be together and be with people who understand what we're coming from and the experiences that we've had um, and the emotional reaction to the constant anti-Asian hatred uh, that we've felt. Yeah. Right, someone's clicking. Can anyone hear the clicking? Is it just me that can hear it? I can hear it. I don't know what it is. Um, sorry. Yes, yes. So yeah, we're going to get on um, to speaking about that um, as well, because it has been a pretty rough time. I mean, I know how I felt sort of hearing about the Atlanta shooting and stuff. I thought, oh, uh, no, we can't hear Patsy. Um, so yeah, I, I obviously, as a black person, I totally understand that gut punch feeling. And then you start hearing all the excuses that it was like, are these people actually joking? It was like, oh, well, they were sex workers. Oh, he was having a bad day. Oh, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's just, how can any, you know, and it, just the whole, I didn't like the sort of situation where they were trying to set up black people. I was like, no, we understand. So don't even try it, okay? Because we can see exactly what is happening right now. It has been pretty horrifying. It's the first time that I've seen xenophobia Xenophobia is like, is it, it's anti-Asian, anti-sort of East Asian sentiment, isn't it? China, I was, was it just China? Yeah, I think uh, like the definition is anti-Chinese hate, but because white people can't tell anyone who's remotely Asian apart, it's, yeah, um, yeah it covers it's, all. <laughs> in the same way that Islamophobia gets Sikhs and Hindus, yeah. if, if exactly. white guys having a bad day. So, um, I hear an accent from you, Annie. Is that Australia? New Zealand. Oh my God, my sister lives there. That's a good one. <laughs> just so as racist, but just a little bit smaller than Australia. Yes, they're like the uh, Canada of racism. Yes, they are. They're really, really good about hiding it. <laughs> the woke white at the helm that everyone loves and fans over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah. Because my sister's in Christchurch where oh. there was that shooting and stuff. So Yeah, was, that's where I grew up. Really? Oh wow. So how did you feel watching New Zealand deal with COVID and then ending up here? <laughs> um, it was interesting because New Zealanders are quite dramatic and they would go, they went into like a three-day lockdown and they all had a cry. And I was like, I'm literally in my third lockdown, please shut up. <laughs> and they just Australia and New Zealand don't seem to really understand the severity of COVID. It's really bizarre and like that is because that they've had you know quite intense lockdowns and they've I guess managed to close borders quite easily and all of that but they don't think COVID's a big deal um because they haven't had any sort of really bad I'm not laughing at you sorry it sounds like lip smacking can anyone else hear it or somebody just doing a little jazzy kind of offbeat kind of finger clicking my daughter's well next door watching cartoons I don't know what it is might be my earring. No, it's it, uh, like, no, 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 no. Sounds something coming from this, from the system, from the yeah. ghosts in the machine. Bezos is watching us. <laughs> Sorry. If so, that yeah. is, you should pay more tax. <laughs> pay <Sorry>. taxes. <laughs> no one needs that much money. You're a grasping shite. Next. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. Sorry. You say, so New Zealand. Yeah, they did. My nephews. Like when I say. They go, what are you doing? I was like, nothing. We're in lockdown. They're like, what for? And I'm like, COVID. They went, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, auntie, there's still COVID. I was like, yeah, there's still COVID here. So, yeah, it's been pretty bad 
it's been pretty bad. Yeah. It has. Um, so have you guys? So you guys have been locked down. Have you? Did you feel a change? Like okay, let's just go right back to um, about 2015 when they announced the Brexit vote, because we felt immediately the change. Um, did you guys experience any kind of racial abuse and stuff? Because I think what the problem is very often when you speak to people, and I've had this argument online before, is they think that people from an East Asian background have no problems, you know? And if you try to say, no, look, can you not see it's the same stuff that happens to us? They're like, oh yeah, but you know, they're viewed differently to us. They don't have the problems that we have. And they're different stereotypes, but they're still harmful. Did you guys, yeah. My, my timeline started January 2016 when David Bowie died and took all the cosmic glue that held everything together. <laughs> and really from there, everything went kaplooey, didn't it? Because we, I mean, you know, for, for, for the Brexit lot to win, to win that, um, to, to win that vote, which essentially meant that yes we took back control but it was obvious that we would have to be handing it over to America so what we've done is nailed ourselves to the USS Titanic which was, has been imploding is, is, in, is the superpower in, in decline you know so we had that and then and then to cap that I think that opened the doors for Trump to come in so you saw there was this definite lurch and I think it had been sort of hold, holding on um, for Asians in, in Britain, it's very much, it's been more, we've been kept invisible, we've been kept down. And of course, that makes us a permanent reservoir of scapegoats, because you can all, you can keep on projecting whatever the state wants to project onto them. If they need a scapegoat, that means that the Chinese were always set up. So, so when they tried blaming the UK Chinese for the foot and mouth outbreak in 2001, I thought that was um, very much they were flying a kite because if you remember the the, the press never apologised for that even when it was um, the minister Nick Brown you know um, apologised and vindicated the Chinese because it was just so mind-bogglingly um, absurd. So I actually take it right back to there, and you had some people like John Pilger. I mean, he made this film called The Coming War on China in 2016. And once Trump had started his, um, his his trade war on China, that was very clearly gloves were off, and there was clearly a trajectory from there to I think to to war now. So I think we're in a very dangerous time. Yeah, I mean Donald Trump. I mean, what can you say? It was absolutely outrageous the stuff that he was saying. I mean, I don't want to get into. Yeah, we all know how disgusting he is, but it was just so blatant, the China flip. And you know, when he gave his last speech and he was going, he still had to just slip it in one more time. It's like, mate, just go. It was just so disgusting. And I don't know, Aisha, you were gonna say something. I was just gonna bring up that, the fact that they blamed um, this recent COVID variant on wet markets in China. And, and then we'd had exactly the same thing happen with SARS before and bird flu. And the thing, and this massive misunderstanding of wet markets and actually the original uh, strands were found way before the Chinese. And it's just like the things you tell a lie enough times and it sticks. And, and you know, I think in terms of what you said about being a, a 
ready scapegoat. I think that's an example of exactly that. It's just once they once it's been done, you plant the seed, and then and it's just people completely accept it. You know, people completely accept it without any. There's no yeah. trying to investigate it. There's no investigative journalism going on, and people trying to actually find what, out the real. What's been shocking is that there's been practically no response. I mean, I remember Ava reading one of her tweets. And I think, Ava, you were the only person, certainly at that point, that, that said independently, without being prompted, I'm seeing a lot of, you know, anti-Chinese, this, this racism. And, uh, and I was really impre impressed by that, but I shouldn't have been because there should have been a general outcry. What is this crap we're, we're being fed here? So the, the press has absolutely colluded with this. The, the, the Guardian... You know, I mean, you expect this from the Sun and the Murdoch press and the and the, the Mail and the, the right wing press. But to see the Guardian actually leading the charge on a lot of this has been very shocking. And they've been outright lying. They've uh, they lie by omission. They lie by commission as, uh, as well. And of course, they've they've had their comments closed off for how long? So you can't even comment and, and, and correct, correct this stuff. So there is, I think it, there is the project for, the, for America in the 21st century. And when they started by partitioning Yugoslavia, then, you know, the Iraq war, Libya they've destroyed. So there are slave markets in, in Libya and, 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 and so on. It was clear when W was in 2005, standing in the rubble of Iraq, and he was um, designating China a competitor, that they were ticking off the boxes and at some point they were going to get to the end and I thought the end game is going to be Russia and China. And here we are. Yeah, I mean, I, I recognized it. I mean, I just was like, I know racism when I see it. It's always the same components. It's uh, disease, it's our diets, it's disease. I remember having an argument with a black guy who we were actually friends offline. And I said, look, don't, don't go there. Just don't start. He's saying, oh yeah, but you know, like the COVID and I went, have you forgotten Ebola? Have you forgotten having, having Ebola shouted at you as you walked down the street? Then it's, he was going, yeah, but diets and bats. And I said, cowfoot, pigtail, I love them all, eat them all. What are you talking about? Like, I don't care what anybody, you know, you can't, you can just see it's the same, like disease, breed, dirty, trying to have, are you kidding me? Do you know what I mean? As Aisha said, you just started washing your legs, don't. <laughs> they haven't started. Sure they openly say? admitted they don't wash their legs. Have you seen that video of the girl? I bring it up every time because I, I want to ring my dead grandma and talk to her about it and just put her response on the show. But she says, I don't really wash. I just shampoo my hair and just let the water run down my body. But anyway, aside from that, I was just going to say the, the racism inherent in what we choose to eat of the animal is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> You know, particularly as we did with all parts, liver, and all sorts, just because white people will now only eat chicken breasts, that doesn't mean that the rest of the world has to be stupid and, you know, nonsense, does it? But can I say about eating the bats? I mean, that was all a fantasy as well, because that's not part of Chinese cuisine. There might be a few people down in Yunnan province, you know, in the, in the jungle, southern part of China, who eat bats. But all those pictures you saw of bat eating, there was um, one uh, Chinese um, 
travel journalist who went to Palau, which is in Micronesia, which comes under um, control of America. And she's shown eating a bat. In Louisiana, they eat barbecued bats. But it's not part of Chinese cuisine. And anyway, they know that it didn't go. It's so crude, the idea that, oh, by eating a bat, suddenly you get corona, coronavirus. The cooking alone would have killed it if that, if that had happened. But a lot of those um, pictures of animal cruelty were from Indonesia as well. So from other parts of Asia that aren't as, uh, as developed as any nation develops. It grows a middle class and people start getting pickier about what, what, what they eat. Bats are not considered a delicacy in, in China. Um, but there you had the Guardian. I remember the Guardian writing one piece that was, you know, that was um, pearl clutching. Oh, isn't this awful? The, you know, the, the racism against Chinese that they'd participated in. So they wrote this piece and then the links were straight to the, the, the horror bat soup picture which was from Palau, and I picked them up on this. I've still got it, and then, the, so they can't deny it because I took a screen grab before, before I got them to change it. But it, it has, as you say, this Goebbels-like association of the minority that you're picking on with filth and pestilence and disease. It's still, it, it is still going on, and it's, you know, it's vile. I find it really interesting, I guess. There's many yeah, theories exactly. about the, um, the way that coronavirus has spread around the world and there were conversations happening that there was the military games in I think August of 2019 and that's where the US military was in China and it's thought that coronavirus and its spread started there because it then went to uh, the states and all of a sudden was quite prolific across the states as well as all of the other manifestations. But for me, the issue, especially with that, like the minoritized communities as being filthy is that it's not anyone with the melanin levels we have who have been traveling the world during coronavirus who as soon as things happened decided to jet off on a plane to Jamaica or to the other side of the world or to a chalet in Switzerland like it was not us we are the ones who wash our legs wash our hands wash the food that we eat like we did not spread this we have hygiene like, and it is people who don't have hygiene and we know who those people are because they were emptying chamber pots into the streets that have spread this. Yeah, I mean, I'm right there. That flag there is um, <laughs> from Barbados. So you can imagine how we got blamed for killing Captain Tom. Um, and there was a lot, I was like, you need to just back off with all of this, but they were bringing it into Barbados. Yeah. Like the Caribbean dealt with it very, very well and very, very quickly. And it was the tourism, just people who just didn't want to stay home. Even like you had frustrated like Bajans going up and down the beaches, filming them going, they've got the red anklets on. I mean, there was people, there was that uh, black female footballer. There was the people from Love Island who were told you have COVID and they just sprinted to the airport and were arrested there. So it was like, yeah, it was a lot of us were dealing with that as well. I mean, in terms of, um, you said ESEA was newly formed um, in response to the Georgia killings. How is it in the Chinese community? Because I'm not educated on the subject, I'll be honest. Like, in terms of black people, you can see from the recent documentaries on the BBC, the rise and fall of black power. You can see, like, in subnormal, how everybody had to get together and go, look, they're putting our children in remedial, remedial schools. 
I mean, for people who don't know, what was the influx of Chinese um, people and East Asian people into this country? And also, did, did you guys organize in the same way that we did? Or is this just a relatively new thing in response to what's, what's been going on? I would say that it's relatively new. Like I think Anna can definitely speak on the history a bit more, but the what she was saying about everyone being quite spread out and going to different areas and in the UK specifically, there's an issue of people not understanding what Asian means. I mean, Asian is 60% of the world's population, yet in the UK, it speaks specifically to South Asian communities who have their very own problems. But when we speak about the specific East Asian hate, we are speaking about people who look more like us. And that is something that the UK doesn't quite understand. But we have like the history of um, Soho's Chinatown. It was a red light district for the West End. And then uh, eventually a bunch of new migrants managed to get cheap rent there and open restaurants. And now we have Chinatown, which um, is great. But like Chinatown doesn't exist in Asia because everywhere is Chinatown. <laughs> um, however, that's what you've got here. And that's how they've built communities. But it's been very much a, you have to like sit down, do your work, go where you can, get money. And there was the, um, the treatment of the sailors and they were sent back, uh, weren't allowed to stay with their families. If you were a white woman and born in the UK and you had married a Chinese sailor and you had kids, if you, if you married him, as opposed to just like being a de facto partner with him, you would lose your citizenship. And it's all of that like really pervasive, gross, imperial behavior that you ask these people to come here for your late for their labor and now you want to punish them and it's the exact same with the Chinese Exclusion Act in the United States but because of that everyone's just gone where they can I think Liverpool and London are probably the biggest areas of uh like Chinese migration and I think Kim Johnson the Liverpool Labour MP has asked for a formal apology for the treatment of the sailors um, it's nice to see Labour doing something anti-racist once and one um, time only <laughs> once a year special <laughs> yeah um, I think there's about five people in Labour doing anti-racist things all the time <laughs> yeah uh, and then Keir Starmer just ignores them <laughs> but it's it is hard to mobilize in your community that's just been told to sit down and um, shut up basically like the the influx of migrants to the UK from East Asia it came after the war when and British people love to say it is we were developing our palates and we wanted to eat more exciting food after the war rations and it's like okay so a bunch of Asian people arrived cool and then you treated them poorly but you still wanted to eat their food okay yeah. that's that's nice like did they nice to know that they introduced you to soy sauce and like <laughs> other flavors but it's everyone's been very disparate and you it's hard to build community when you don't feel welcome and I think the first official Chinatown or unofficial however you want to call it in Limehouse London it was attacked quite viciously racial hatred and even the fact of white women marrying um, Asian men was seen as really disgusting by the British men it's like maybe you just need to stop being so whatless and undesirable and people might want to marry you instead but instead they got angry at the people who they thought were taking their woman. And that's the exact same thing that happens across all kinds of um, racial lines. And it's again, like this gross patriarchy 
colonial mix. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. kind of the um, the deification of the white woman and it makes everything that you do to everybody else justified because you're protecting white women and don't they know it? Mm. Yeah, exactly. White women don't need protection. Like, oh, trust me, they don't, they're, they're the aggressors, mate. <laughs> well, we had, when we had Ghislaine on, she did quite a bit around, you know, the damage and white women upholding white supremacy and stuff like that, but yet being seen as delicate flowers and stuff. And um, yeah, definitely in our community when there was mixing, like for a while, the children's, children's homes were full of these mixed race children absolutely full of these um, children who were mixed with black and white because the women would get such a hard time walking around with these brown babies. So yeah, it's all pretty, yeah. It wasn't just that they got a hard time. A lot of them didn't want them. I happen to personally know somebody who was in that situation, was born, sent straight to her home. The mother did it again and didn't want to know later. She was just so desperate for Black D that she did that and then couldn't, didn't want anything to do with the child. Honestly, the level, the levels mm. are um, but yeah, sorry. Anna. See, I, I think I, I escaped the worst of it when I was a kid. My mum's actually English. But as you can see, I look totally Chinese. I look totally like my dad. The only bit of my mum I can see is the bridge of my nose here. Everything else is my dad. And I just loved it. But I think I, I was um, born in, I was born in Hackney for starters, where everyone was mixed. You know, you just mm. didn't notice other people's differences really when, when, when you were a kid. And that was absolutely true in, in, in Hackney. Everyone was poor, so, 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 so um, nobody cared but I do remember the there was a lot of pressure there were a lot of, you know mi mixed race kids with um very loving um white white mothers but I think there was incredible pressure I mean my mother the pressure she was on like every day from the white family was just was just horrendous you know why did you go off with a Chinese bloke you know you, you you've got you've got this kid now who, who's um not white and I remember my mum used to try and curl my long black straight hair by putting it in my my dad's socks every night you know winding it up and she, and every day before I went to school so this is like me at about you know five from five or six she she put a bit of rouge on my cheeks just trying to to make me look a bit less Chinese and a bit more more English so it was quite subtle the stuff that was happening but I would I would say a most of the damage for me was done by just not having, um, seeing myself reflected in the culture at all. You know, I discovered Anna Mae Wong when I was, I don't know, about six or six something that they showed it on a rainy afternoon on a Sunday afternoon um, on telly, um, the Shang Shanghai Express, which was the most amazing film where she blew Marlene Dietrich off the screen. So, so that was one glimpse. But everything else was hookers, you know, it was Juicy Lucy and Virgin Soldiers. It it was um uh oh Su Susie Wong, Su Susie Wong in the in the Hong Kong about the, the lovable Hong, Hong Kong hooker. And there was an absolute absence of everything else. But from my dad, I would see his magazines and there would be pictures of Chinese women in laboratory coats and mm. specs. So the Chinese image I was getting was was very much that women should be doing doing those things in the normal British culture it was 
well, you just don't exist, you're invisible, except as, you know, as, as, a, as a sex toy. But in the general feminism, it was like, oh, I can do whatever I want because this is the age and I'm being told that I can do these things. So, so I'm being called all these different, different ways and then just sort of, you know, carved a channel you know, of, of, of my own, which is unfortunate because we should have all been sort of, you know, working and growing together. It's an yeah. interesting point about the feminism that you saw, but actually there not being any representation of you within that. Yeah, because I mean, we don't really think about it a lot. I mean, black people are always fighting for um, better representation. You do hear other minority groups go, but you guys are in loads of stuff. It's like we're robbing people. <laughs> we're people. crying over I'm our dead really, You know what I mean? So I don't didn't even really, you know, obviously me growing up, I never really thought about the lack of Chinese women and stuff like that. I never thought about it. It never really occurred to me, but representation, obviously as a black woman, I know how important representation is, how important it is to see yourself in all different roles. And, you know, like for instance, even in South Africa, I never, I always refer back to this book because I just loved it and read it in like two days in Barbados, like, you know, um, on the beach, just Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom. And I just remember him saying that when they were going to do some training in Angola, they got onto the um, plane and were like, we got to get off this plane. Like the, the pilot's black, black people don't fly planes. Like they were terrified. It was just like, and it was that moment like, wow, like we had not seen that before. We, it, it worked to them. It was just an impossible dream. Speaking about stereotypes and stuff like that, have you got, well, obviously I know what the answer is, but just to, to explain to people watching who wouldn't know, um, the way that China is viewed in the world, obviously is gonna have a knock-on effect on the diaspora. I mean, can you explain how that's changed over the course of the last few years with China rising and becoming a superpower? And you know, you see the organization against the Chinese is quite desperate. I remember it in Obama times, when he was over with Julian Gillard over in Australia, and it was like to save the Pacific Islands from the Chinese, you're gonna do the trade deal. And everybody was like, oh my God, this is like really great. They're like, you know, we're, they're, they're going with China and Obama's, I was going, this is awful. This is not good. Yeah. What are you talking about? It's like, oh, they're gonna come in and like, you know, ruin things and don't, don't buy this from Chinese people. Chinese people were selling plastic rice. Like piss off, like Chinese people not eating or selling plastic rice, for God's sake, That's, they got rice down, okay? They're not selling any freaking plastic, stop it. You know, it was just all these, so yeah, has that, also we spoke about sort of Brexit, COVID, sort of in the rise of the way China's viewed in the world, that's got to be the knock-on effect, it's been... Okay, you have to remember that up until the 19th century, China was probably the most technologically advanced country in, in the world. So if you think of the silks and porcelain and, and, and spices and um, China had hydraulics from, you know, millennia ago, there are siege drills, um, uh, harnesses and things. So, so there's a whole wealth of, of inventions, gunpowder, obviously, you know, um, pa paper, another, and, and, the pr and a, a, a printing press. So you, you can take it, uh, Obama, that, that pivot to Asia in, 20, um, in, in uh, 2012 was incredibly dangerous, but it goes back to what Britain and America and the West were doing to China in the 19th century. So 
up until the Brits, the, the East India Company um, basically went and in, invaded invaded China. What, what, what you had was the drug situation was opium was um, a very expensive vice of the aristocracy. It was so expensive that ordinary people just just didn't do it. So the Brits come along, but it, you know, the, we I, I'm say, I'm go now going to place myself British. We were buying lots of lots of silks and spices, um, porcelain and all this stuff, all the chinoiserie that people fell in love with from uh, from China. But this started to put a strain on the treasury. So a lot of it wasn't just that gold was going out, but China demanded its um, its payments in silver. We didn't have silver, so so Britain had to go to middlemen in order to buy silver, which put extra costs on it, which then went to the Chinese. So basically, you had this draining of the treasury into China because there was nothing Britain had that China wanted. They didn't. What they what did we have? Wool, you know wheat i can't and clockworks they, they tried to get the chinese to, to to buy clockwork stuff so there was nothing so eventually so what what they do is that they've all britain goes and invades india and bites off chunks of it and controls india so in bengal they start um they apply their mass production technique to growing opium so they end up with these huge amounts of cheap mass-produced opium that they then force china to take as as, as payment at, at gunpoint, literally at gunpoint. And remember this period was horrendous. What, what the West, mainly Britain, first of all, did, did to China by, um, well, there were slaughters, they burnt the summer palace, um, turned what had been an aristocratic vice into a nationwide addiction, and then took Hong Kong, you know, took all these places. So you had other countries in the West like, um, Germany, um, America coming in, France, all the big imperial powers ha having their, their little areas within, within China and making a lot of money. I, I mean, a lot of the Industrial Revolution of Britain was paid for by the opium trade. Um, Stornoway Castle, um, the Isle of Lewis, that was paid for by, um, it was either Jardine or Matheson, um, but from their opium money, incidentally, kicking out the 500 families who were actually living on the island and sending them to Canada with no means of support. So this is the sort of thing they were doing to their own. So anyway, so you then end up with this more than 100 years of what the Chinese call the century of humiliation. And it was basically they were weak. They were poor. They were, they were as poor as India by the end of the um, Second World War. So they have a revolution. India doesn't have, have a revolution. And you can see now, I mean, thank God the Chinese had a revolution. There was, there was an awful lot that went wrong and the, um, the cultural revolution was probably not their finest hour. Um, but they basically changed. They pull themselves away from the West and, and they, they, much like I did when I was a kid, but China carves out its, its, its own path. So the one good thing that Nixon and Kissinger did in the 1970s... Wait, Kissinger did something good? They, they actually did something <laughs> good. 
and they approached Dong Xiaoping, this is at the end of once Mao's dead, the, the end of the Cultural Revolution, and they see it as, uh, you know, as a sphere of influence, because, because they can, um, they think they go, they're going to get a sphere of influence, but more importantly, of course, is all that lovely cheap labour. So anyway, if we bring this up to the to, to 2012, when, when Obama has this pivot to Asia, where he takes out the military from the Middle East, where that's just been a basket case and a nightmare for, for decades, nothing gained from, from there except extracting the oil from the Middle East, you know, displacing 37 million people and, and, and so on. And they, they bring all their military into the South China Sea. If you look at a map where all the, the bases are, that is absolutely ringed around, you know, all the way from the Malacca Straits and um, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, all the way around up to, up to the north of um, Japan. And incidentally, the only exit really would be Taiwan, which is about 100 kilometers from the main, mainland, mainland coast. So this is part of why there's a fight over keeping control of Taiwan, because that would be a breach in this wall of American military bases surrounding surrounding China. So sorry, I forget what was the original question. That's the background. Um, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I was just talking about, the, I was saying how is it, that when, obviously I know that the way that China is viewed in the world and China's position in the world affects the diaspora. So that's what I was asking about. Um, so yeah, you just... now, sorry, yes, I, that, that's bringing me up to this cliche, is it, some people regard it as a cliche, the Thucydides trap, which is um, traditionally this goes back to Sparta and Athens, and it's the idea that you have this one dominant power, there's another one coming up, so it's inevitable, they're going to have a war and slug it out. Now, people were hoping that this was not going to happen, just as China draws level with, with the American economy, although remember per capita, um, the um, earnings are still only a sixth of America in, in, um, in, in, in China. So whereas you had these Confucius Institutes all over the West, you've got the NBA, who I, I love those players, who were doing so, so well in China, very popular in, 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 in China. You've got this whole cultural thing where, and, and on an industrial scale as well. So, so in Britain, China's, since I think 2006 has been, been equipping us with 4G, then 5G, um, Huawei was, 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 coming in and, and um, doing all that they're supposed to be building us our nuclear power stations so this is how trusted they were and the idea that that um, our security forces haven't looked in there and seen if there's any danger you know China just basically wants to sell stuff it has no interest in being the world's hegemon because you look at what uh, you know America's had these endless wars and you re realize you know we don't we don't really um, want, want that my phone goes i'm just waiting for my phone to stop so so this whole lurch you've got is a deliberate um a psychological operation to now brand people who were being humanized just to now turning us into these into these monsters absolutely monstering us um and uh not a good thing and this and this is where we are where we are now yeah, 
there was just something in one of your articles I was just um, I was read and it just the line um, people who are convinced of their own superiority have to justify their savagery against their neighbors on this small blue planet and it's quite easy as a black person to see it as only us or only Asian and what uh, only yeah, South Asian well particularly like when we had Ashikawa and we were talking about the switch around after 2001 and sort of younger Asian people grew up in this war of terror thing. And one thing I really noticed with Ghislaine, because we don't relate to each other in the way that we should, these different communities, like, and I don't think it's entirely our fault because I, I realized speaking to Ghislaine the other day, I was like, hang on, you guys are black people in France. We don't really know that much about you and what you guys are going through. And in Italy, black people are having a really bad time. So even if we, if we can't recognize it between the diaspora, you know, of different countries, obviously we're not that good at recognizing it when it's happening to other communities, because it just seems that other communities are always having it better than we, we are for a lot of people, that's how people see it. So it's really good having you guys on explaining sort of, you know, sort of let, putting it out there, because I think I mean, I've never been one um, who subscribed to the model minority because you can see yeah. how it turns on a dime. Mm. You know? Yeah. There's, there's all the stereotypes. I mean, you saw the internment camps in uh, America for Japanese people who are then, you know, I think the stereotypes mm. are different, but as we can see, they're equally as harmful. Yeah, it's interesting with the, uh, just one thing that Anna said, the looting of the Summer Palace, a fun fact for the royalists that may be watching. When the Summer Palace was looted and they burned everything, they took the Pekingese dogs as well. And they were the first Pekingese dogs to be um, imported to the UK. Um, and they, gave, they gifted one to Queen Victoria and she named it Looty. That's I think like it's uh, important to care more about um, the fact that the Queen has dogs and the fact that she's the head of an imperialist, vile state and a racist yeah. herself, isn't it? The yeah. fact that she has dogs makes her a human and Thank a nice God. human being, she even though those the dogs. dogs have attacked many people and they've quietened it down. I mean, you know, it's important. She's just, just a nice girl, just who's worked really hard all her life and yeah. didn't do anything. With, with, the, with the, the calling animals thing it's just like like all the way like in the 50s and stuff they were called dogs the m-word black dogs um apparently um dominic cummings father-in-law's got a horse called barack because it's half black and half white it's just it's just so insulting you know what i mean it, it's just so dehumanizing and to even laugh and call it looty is just so absolutely Graceful. Yeah. Um, how has it been for you guys? Like, it must have been horrible just watching it slowly because I know I felt like that with racism post Brexit. Like, I'd always felt pretty British, and you know, was he still black? Well, I'm feeling it. I, I am yeah. definitely feeling it. And I'm someone who who grew up, you know, well, on my, as I say, on my mum's side of the family, you know, white white British British mm. family. So feeling, you know, being told in one way that you belong and you deserve everything everything that everyone has access to you have the right to that so that's at a very deep deep level yeah. but also being aware of my white family's dis disapproval of um my a horrible feelings um so so that's 
that's and really finding it in the last four years just exploding like this monster that's been lurking under the surface all this time i think we're luckier than in, in america because i i think americans have just fallen hook line and sinker for for this whereas in britain i think there's more of a cynicism there's there's more of um people question things more here now i know that's weird considering we voted for brexit which <laughs> puts paid to that to that theory it's but weird because we started the racism so just in general yeah. i mean 700 years ago <laughs> but i feel i feel there are a lot of britishers who are sort of dimly aware that they're being manipulated whereas americans have just completely i think that's probably true gone for it you know and i'm in america i'm relying on black lives matter to talk some sense into this and they have been i'm so pleased that they've been they're amazing but look at the reception you know the radicalization that's been going on there and then people trying to slag it off are now trying to turn blm into something negative and you just knew they were going to do this yeah I mean, I hope it's communist, but I don't think it necessarily is communist, unfortunately. I mean, it's the same they did with the Black Panthers. Whenever there's just a rise in consciousness, they'll do something, you know, begin the so-called war on drugs by flooding communities. I was reminded of that when Anna was talking about, weren't you? Like what they did in, um, uh, what they did, the CIA did with African-American neighborhoods with the crack 